Hi, good day and thank you for tuning in to this new episode of the Microdose Diet. So my guest today is Victoria Littman. So very, very interesting lady. She works at the intersection of non-profit tax law, constitutional law, religious freedom, theology, cannabis, and psychedelics. So it's quite uh, it's quite a mouthful. So so she really helps tax exempt nonprofits realize their potential for positive impact with a focus on emerging cannabis and psychedelic tax exempt sector. So she's going to tell us more about that in a minute. My name is Peggy Van de Plage. I am a former banker and venture capitalist. I know speak and write about the benefits of alternative medicines, such as microdosing psilocybin, for professional and personal groups. So I created the Microdose Diet, which is a 90-day plan for success and happiness. So you can follow my work on Substack, LinkedIn, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, all that great stuff. So Victoria, thank you very much for being here today. It's really a treat to have you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate well, the invitation. No, that's that's fabulous. Okay, so first question, which I'm sure everyone is uh, wondering, tell us more about the help you provide to this tax-exempt nonprofit in the psychedelic space. Absolutely. So my work in private practice uh, primarily is tax advising uh, and assisting these organizations with uh, tax compliance. So in some ways in the U.S., the tax exempt sector is limited because of federal illegality uh, still of many of these substances. Yeah. Um, but there are there are plenty of organizations, especially advocacy organizations like your oh, psychedelic okay. society or um maybe research organizations, for example, MAPS uh, mm -hmm. is a 501c3. Um, and then a huge area that I focus on is also religious organizations um, who fall within the 501c3 category. Um, okay. And sometimes I joke with my clients, right? It's much easier for the government if they wanted to go after you for tax evasion uh, than some of these religious freedom issues. Um, so, you know, making sure that you're paying your employees well, making sure that you're um, categorizing your income, just kind of having all your ducks in a row uh, yeah. just can help uh, limit, you know, risks. Um, and there's also some creative structuring that some of these organizations do just because of the illegality. So there's sponsorship, yeah. fiscal sponsorship, um, different structuring, you know, related businesses, unrelated businesses. Um, but ultimately, I think part of being a legitimate industry in this country is taking ourselves seriously um, yes. and, and, you know, acting as if any other business would. And un unfortunately or fortunately, um, tax compliance is, is a necessary part of that. Yeah, so it's very interesting because I was interviewing a few weeks ago the CEO of a biotech company, and he was telling me that his background was actually in regulatory affairs, not at all in uh, in healthcare. And he said, if you want to be successful in this type of industry, you need to have a very, very deep understanding, actually, of uh, reg regulation. So I can see why you're bringing so much value by understanding, you know, all these fine lines that very often people focusing on maybe religious, uh, you know, angles or psychedelics might think that secondaries, but become very dangerous kind of for them if it's not on their radar. No, absolutely. So you are a founding member of the Psychedelic Bar Association. So what is it? Who is it in impacting the psychedelic industry? Sure. So it's um, an organization of lawyers just started a few years ago. 
um, focused substantively on the emerging area of psychedelic law um, and all of that entails intellectual property, legislation, religious use. Um, but they're also really interested, uh, we're also interested in exploring, you know, how can using psychedelics change how we think about being a lawyer and the profession oh, more broadly? Um, because, you know, lawyers aren't really known for being uh, mindful or... <laughs> Um, having good balance, right? So we're working on like, what does it mean to shift how we lawyer? Um, so the, the association is really still in development, right? But we've done some advocacy work, education work, we've drafted letters in support of state um, measures. Uh, for example, we're also putting on a workshop at Psychedelic Science next uh, week or whenever this airs in Denver yeah. um, in, in June, yeah. the, the large conference. Um, and I think it's really impacting uh, the industry substantively, because when all these lawyers are collaborating and coordinating um, all across the country, right, um, we can come up with better measures, we can um, mm -hmm. have, you know, I bring, for example, the nonprofit tax work, but there are people who are intellectual property lawyers, and we yeah. can all kind of learn um, from each other. But I also think in a, in a soft way, in a sense of like, just developing relationships amongst these lawyers uh, can just be really valuable, um, especially in this field that's so new and so emergent. Exactly. Um, to have other other people that you know um, who are who have their hands uh, in the industry as well. Yeah, and I, I I didn't realize I found that the angle was mainly on the application of flow. I didn't realize that it was also more in terms of personal and professional growth that this association was supporting to your point lawyers like people in finance are not the best in terms of uh, balance <laughs> so that's so interesting because usually it's always focused just on the career aspect and what i mean by that is really the expertise and it's really who can you become maybe more creative or you know uh, more self-aware all these things that will help you in your career but that we tend to look at secondary. Did you see people really having appetite for that? I think it attracts a certain, you know, group of people. Like, for example, one really easy example is like we a lot of times do meditation at the beginning of our meetings. And I've been in a lot of bar associations and that's not, you know, necessarily common. And I but I, I think like it's a it's a mixed thing. Like not everyone is as into it, but it's an ongoing experiment. Right. Like, right. but if you're in. Not, and look, not everyone who works in psychedelics uses psychedelics, but many people, especially in these early stages, are coming to it because of their own experience. And so, exactly. um, you know, it's a space just beyond just learning the law to like try and integrate, you know, professionally psychedelics. Um, but it's, it's an ongoing experiment. You know, we'll see yeah. what it looks like in five years or 10 years. But um, yeah. it's been uh, enriching for, for me personally, definitely. Yeah, I can see that. And it's, it's fun as well to be with like-minded people but also people who might come from a different perspective i as a business practitioner i always like to think about riding the biggest wave and psychedelic is a huge wave and i can see why some people whether in law or in finance might be attracted to psychedelic not because they're interested but just because they see that it's such a huge pool <laughs> that is is just gonna um, unfold over the next 5 10 15 years so it's great to position yourself early um so i can see that it's not necessarily just people advocating you know and it might be just a pure business decision to go in that direction i'm sure you have some of that as well Certainly. And uh, I might touch on that in a, a later question that you have for me as well. <laughs> okay, that's fabulous. Okay, well, let, let, let's move on then. So 
as I mentioned, you work really at the intersection of of, of many uh, many different uh, areas, and one that I think very interesting that you hold two degrees in religion and two degrees in law. So how do you see these two fields connect? Do you even see a connection? And um, especially, I would say, in the context of psychedelics. No, absolutely. I mean, my journey to all those degrees was uh, rooted in in seeing the connection uh, between religion and psychedelics, both legally, but also personally, but also historically. I mean, um, the history of the use of psychedelics in the world ancient history, most of it was in religious contexts, communal mm-hmm. contexts, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then in the U.S. today, even though there are some great, and the U.S. is where I focus, you know, I can speak best to that, um, you know, depending on how you think about it, in terms of access that is at least quasi-legal, the majority of the quasi-legal access in the United States today is happening through religious communities. Like there are religious communities in um, almost every state that are using a variety of substances um, through like a religious defense model. And I've done some other writing on this, have a big law article coming out in the next year, like kind of outlining this whole landscape. So it's an exciting emerging area, but it's also just a huge um, access point right now, Mm -hmm. particularly when you see, okay, even Oregon, I mean, that therapy is going to be thousands of dollars a session. Um, And religious communities being um, a much more accessible way for people um, to to get access to these substances. But I also just think like personally, so I'm pretty involved in a religious community that actually is not a psychedelic religious community, um, a Jewish reform community um, personally. Uh, But I really think like uh, psychedelics and community really need each other. You know, I don't know like need, Mm -hmm. but they really strengthen each other. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I think I would be wary to say religious communities need psychedelics. I think religious communities are strengthened by tools for spiritual engagement. And that could be meditation. It could be prayer. It could be dance. It could be music. Um, But I think psychedelics alone, and we're going to see this more and more as they become more accessible, like just taking a psychedelic is not going to create sustained healing. It just isn't. You're going to have an experience, you know, you're going to, yeah. So I think the community and like a community that has shared meaning is really an essential ingredient to turning this psychedelic experience, this altered state um, into, you know, altered traits, as Houston Smith says, or, um, you know, a more fulfilled and uh, meaningful yeah. existence, which I really think is what most people are striving for when they seek out these substances is, you know, exactly. a um, a feeling of belonging, a feeling of connectedness. Um, and to me, just community and uh, for personally, religious community is a, a huge uh, provider of that. Mm, it's very interesting. I really, I, I totally agree with your um, opinion that psychedelic alone is not going to probe. It's not a silver bullet. And I just find it very interesting when I hear um, people like, oh, I just had psychedelic and totally changed my life. And I'm just like, okay, maybe I'm doing it wrong, but I really don't think it's the case, you know? <laughs> and uh, and good for them if it had been their experience, but I'm a bit doubtful of that and I agree with you I think it's okay it's the set the settings we know that but it's also the the intention of feeling and the approach so I am I'm not associated with any type of religion but I like the spirituality you know and I like to take from every kind of uh, religious context and I find that really strengthen my practice and to your point if you combine all these practices that are meditation that are dancing that are singing that are praying that are psychedelics they really 
augment each other. Uh, I just don't think one, you know, you can sing, you can dance, whatever. If, if you don't, <laughs> I'll take a psychedelic, if you don't really have a goal, if you don't have the context, it's not really going to bring you that um, super healing. So I, I, I agree with you. Do you see in your community people being interested in taking psychedelics to help with that, um, you know, spiritual awareness and that connection, maybe a divine connection? I think in the Jewish community more broadly, there's definitely interests in exploration in my own community. So I also work in cannabis. I'm a cannabis uh, law professor. So uh, cannabis recently became legal in the state that I live in. And so I think people are starting maybe more with that. But every once in a while, you know, I meet people who are like, hey, like psychedelics, right? So um, (laughs) I I also just want to say like, you know, I work in psychedelics. I am someone who's here because I think it's, um, has the potential to really help people. And I, I wouldn't say like one, one experience can be really transformative. Um, especially I think when you're in a really severe mental rut, when you Mm -hmm. just like giving you that perspective that things can be different, but I think it's kind of like a curve. It's like, okay, you take this, the substance and you have this like, Oh, things are different. And then if you don't do any work to sustain that, it'll be like, Ooh, it's different. Oh wait, no, wait, I'm right back into it because it's so I don't want to say like, oh, it doesn't do anything, but yeah. like if the goal is long-term healing and yeah. not just like short-term escapism. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely agree with you. Um, so one question on the psychedelic industry, of course, you're very plugged in to what's happening with all your activities, with the network. I like it's a network from lawyers that is a bit different, maybe from the usual network in psychedelics. Um where do you see the psychedelic industry going? I think aspirationally, I see many points of access. So sometimes people say, oh, medical or state regulated or religious use, and it's going to be all of them. Like, it's mm-hmm. not going to necessarily be one or the other. Like, some people yeah. will get it through FDA-sanctioned um, mm-hmm. medical, um, you know, access points. Some people will get it through Oregon or Colorado or more state, uh, you know, state-regulated access points. Some people will get it through a sort of a gray market decriminalization, mm-hmm. social sharing type model. Some people will get it through religious use. Um And I think we're going to see lots of trial and error. Uh, I think some people said, oh, well, we saw in the U.S. at least like state cannabis laws. We can learn from those. But it's different. It it just is different because of how they're going about it. And then federal illegality just remains a huge barrier to both cannabis and psychedelics, banking, taxes. Um, So we're going to see, I think, a lot of trial and error. I don't expect all these like even Oregon already. You know, I don't I see Oregon as sort of a failure already. Some people yeah. say, well, it's not a failure, but it, it's costing $3,000 for a session. To me, that's a, fa- a failure yes. and they, they're yeah. not really able to fund it. Um, but I'm hoping, you know, in the long term, the long term trajectory, like over 10, 15 years, right, we have more safe access, less criminalization. Um, yeah. But I don't think anything is, is guaranteed. Um, mm-hmm. on, on my worst days, I see there's a lot of division, um, in the cannabis industry, people sometimes joke like, well, at least we're not as bad as psychedelics, right? Just the amount of division, um, in the industry among advocates, among business people, among, um, people that you think are sort of on the same team. Um, but to your point earlier, I think there are very real reasons why people disagree in the industry. Um, and also in the cannabis industry and a very basic reason, right? Is some people are here because we believe that this has a healing potential. This can change people's lives. And we're motivated by that. And some people are here because they see a profit opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think those things sometimes do work in opposition um, because profit can uh, thrive when you have um, scarcity, right? Um, And and that's sort of an opposition to creating access for people. Um, But the the fun thing with these these drug markets, right, is like, 
it, just like with most things, like making it illegal, it, it does make the access less safe and less robust, but people are doing psychedelics all over the country. So yeah. like just saying like, oh, we're going to stop the state legal measures, like you're not going to stop people from using yeah. psychedelics. Exactly. Just, yeah. So that gives me kind of hope, honestly, because it's like, well, you know, the, the market's not going to die, like no matter yeah. what happens. Oh. It's, the cat is out of the bag by now, you know. And but to your point, I this three thousand dollar session that you see popping up, you know, in New York, in Oregon, whatever, under different names. And um, I mean, great if it's the beginning of an experiment and people learn from that. But it should quickly become accessible to most because if it's only people who have a financial means, but not just financial means, but education means as well, because most people are not aware it even exists. So you're really going with upper type, you know, class, which can pay, but also is aware that it exists. So, and and I think that's the big, that's a big challenge. And back to what you were saying, where, you know, some people will get it from FDA, some people will get it from religious organizations, that. I think there will be as well this different, I think it's good to have different access points because some people will be comfortable maybe getting it from the religious community, uh, but wouldn't be comfortable from the gray market. Uh, some people will not be comfortable getting it as a FDA approved, but will be comfortable getting it from a community, for example. So I think it's great to have all these different avenues. But to your point, and the U.S. is always complex because such a large country, such a different perspective in, you know, it's as if you had like 10 countries in, in one, you know. And so it's difficult to have a, a federal law. But without a federal law, to your point, it does massive impact. Do you think we're going to have or you're going to have, because I'm in Canada, Federal legislation. Uh, I know there is a pack. I know there is a lot of push for federal legislation. What's what's your perspective on that? You think you're gonna by you the US gonna be able to go in that direction? I think eventually. I don't know. It's like interesting being in cannabis and psychedelics because cannabis. You have you know a giant majority of the states have legalized cannabis, and these federal barriers remain. Um, and there just isn't an appetite at the federal level. But with the veterans, with the FDA access with yeah. psychedelics, like, yeah. but, but, but the thing is like, then this might cause some challenges to the state regulated markets. Like, even if the federal law changed with regard to FDA, that wouldn't change necessarily, it wouldn't necessarily change the banking and tax challenges for like Oregon or Colorado. Mm -hmm. And then you're like pitting against these markets um, and, and access. So, um, I don't know when I, when I talk about like policy, I do some writing, like think tank writing or other policy writing. It's right. Right. Like my, my federal policy is, you know, um, decriminalize at the federal level and remove federal barriers and let mm -hmm. the States do what they're doing. Um, and I think there might be more appetite for that because the federal government doesn't want to spend resources heavily regulating either cannabis or psychedelics. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, sometimes with cannabis, we say probably within the decade, oh, you know, think psychedelic. Decade. I mean, uh. yeah, yeah. Like, I don't think it's going to happen this year or next year. Mm -hmm. or It's just not, a, it's like, even though when you're in the industry, you're like, oh, this really matters. And people really care about it in, D <laughs> in DC. Like they don't care about it. They literally, and, yeah. and even the ones who are like, oh, they're the, the good guys who like care about justice. Like they still have these antiquated ideas around drugs um, and stigma. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I think 
there are certain areas like tax, although that's its own sticky situation because there's mm -hmm. money to be made from the exactly. government, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But, or religious communities where like we can chip away at different access points. Um, I do spend a lot of energy on the religious side just because I think uh, there's a lot of potential on access. And also um, mm. there's, it's, there's more appetite because this is like a, a constitutional amendment that we have protections yes. for religion. Um, and so reducing barriers for religion feels, um, even though it's maybe not good, we have some um, allies that are people that I don't agree with, you know, people that are homophobic mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. um, transphobic, but they really value religious freedom. Yeah. Um, and so trying to maybe find those allies unfortunately yeah. for, yes. for these issues yeah i understand yeah i, I never thought about that but you you sometimes you have to uh, be strategic as well um so thank you so so much for all your insights do you have any parting thoughts anything you want to leave uh, the listeners the viewers with sure so um I've, I've said this in a few other settings and I think I, I really, I hold it as a, something, a reminder I need, and maybe your listener needs, um, you know, it's really, I think important to not be afraid to have strong opinions about things, about anything in the industry, you know, oh, this drug is, I mean, I'm not big on better or worse, but, oh, I, I'm into this one, or I think this is how people should access it. Or I think that this organization is really good or really bad. Um, but I think you need to hold these opinions loosely. Like you need to be willing to change your mind about them. Um, and another thing on that, you know, clearly define your mission, figure out why are you in this? You know, like for me, I've really sort of um, crafted it over time. Like I want to help expand safe access to these substances and to knowledge about them. And sometimes that means I do support like FDA regulation of these. Um, but I also support, you know, decriminalization and yeah. religious use. And you can hold different ideas. But if you know what your mission is, it allows you to then um, consider these uh, more clearly um, and I would just say also kind of be wary and of, of trusting everyone in the industry. I see this all the time, especially in psychedelic spaces, uh, maybe because people feel like, oh, you do psychedelics. I do psychedelics. We're, you know, we're vulnerable. Oh. <laughs> our mind is open. Our spirit's open. Um, but just like every other industry and maybe even more so because of the, um, especially right now, it's so early. Some of the people that are attracted to it, right? There are people who are taking advantage of other people. There mm -hmm. are people that are um, harming other people. Um, there are also great people, uh, but I think it's like, well, we all work in this industry. We'll just be great friends. And it's like, yeah. that's not, you know, just mm. use the, use your judgment, right. Yeah. And trust your instinct. And um, yeah, that wow. can get you really far. I like that. Well, Victoria in barely like 20, 25 minutes, you packed so much insights. I think there's going to be a need to unpack that because it was, I love the fact but we never really talked on this podcast about, you know, the religious freedom and access through religious communities. So that brings a lot of value, just that point. And then you added 25 more uh, takeaways. So thank you so, so much for taking the time and thank you for being with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's been a, a pleasure. Thank you, Victoria.